The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky connections and kinky education. It's kinky done differently. what women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun conversation about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy. With questions asked by a guy. And now, here is your host. Hi there, Catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, a show about how people connect with each other and themselves. I'm John, also known as Hi There, Catsuit, and today we share an inspirational story of a woman who has taken the talents that she has on the stage and brought them into the dungeon in so many awesome ways. Mistress Diamond Blue is a Jacqueline of all trades, she is a classically trained actor, an improviser. She's a professional photographer and cinematographer whose works have been shown internationally. She's a published writer and director of both film and stage and apparently bakes the most amazing batch of white chocolate chunk cranberry shortbread cookies. And oh yes, did I mention she's a cancer survivor? It's the first five. And we start with the first five with Mistress Diamond Blue and the first of the first five. First time you realized that you were just a little bit different. Oh, wow. Uh, I think it was um, when they when they were doing the delivery and dropped me on my head. <laughs> <laughs> I bounced. <laughs> so that's how I knew I was different. My skull wasn't that soft. So <laughs> first time you ever picked up an instrument of torture and your reaction to it. Wow. Um, hmm. I was about 17. And I had a friend of mine who was in the leather scene and I went to his place and he was in the middle of a move and he had some stuff that he was sort of sorting through. And I remember I came across this gigantic paddle, which was in the shape of a, of a, like a, like a bottom of a sole. Mm. And, and I was just like, this is not a shoehorn. <laughs> this is this is like this is just a random soul with a piece of wood sticking out from the bottom of it. Does this what is this? And he says, Oh, you know, it's it's uh I hit people with this. I like to leave an imprint of a of a bottom of a shoe in their ass. I said, okay, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> so I was I was terrified at first, but then I thought the uh the idea was quite intriguing. And I didn't get to use one of those until maybe 20 years later. First time you ever stood on a stage and got a laugh for what you were saying. 
Wow. That's a tough one. I've been on stage for so many different reasons in my life. Uh, I remember the first time being on stage, I think I was about five and I was the leader of my kindergarten band uh, and we we're doing Christmas songs. And I think that's when I like kicked and tripped over the xylophone. So I don't really know if that's, you know, <laughs> so I didn't say anything, but uh, that was, that I was miming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that doesn't count no uh i think i'm i must have been uh, this might have been about 20 years ago and uh it was an open mic and i just decided to go up there and i told some stupid jokes and people left so then i was hooked first time a man ever bowed down to you hmm hmm Good question. I, I don't remember. I know that's a boring answer, but uh, I think the first time my first boyfriend proposed to me, he went down on both knees, not just one knee. So I guess that's kind of bowing. <laughs> that's a half bow. <laughs> First time you ever received an unsolicited dick pic in your reaction to it? Um, there's a little funny story behind that. Uh, I was an erotic, not neurotic. I was, yeah, I was neurotic. I was an, an erotic uh, self-portrait artist. And this is back in the days of Flickr. And uh, that was a site where everybody would go together and like share pictures. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I wasn't posting anything crazy explicit, uh, you know, just some very artsy boob shots. And somebody told me that he was really inspired by my work. And I had my first unsolicited dick pic, but mind you, it was artistic. So I wasn't repulsed. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, that was wow, 2004, I think. Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets 50 shades of grey. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. Realizing that you're polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works, real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find polyam people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. I feel nervous talking to you. Oh, good. And that brings joy to you. Oh, it does. It pleases me immensely. The Baroness, April 20th on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Mistress Diamond Blue, you are 
so many different things wrapped up in such an amazing personality. <laughs> and it's going to be hard to touch on everything, but I want to figure out how it all comes together. Mm -hmm. You are part photographer, mm -hmm. part comedian, mm -hmm. part dominatrix. Mm -hmm. How did all of those three things come together? Um, I would have to say when I was in my late teens, I was introduced through various friends of mine into the leather scene. And I often went to, I, I snuck into the, the clubs because I, I was got away with looking androgynous back then. I had the Annie Lennox look. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I went in there and I was fascinated to see these people uh, together playing, creating scenes. And the more, question I, the more questions I asked, the more fascinated I became. And then you started dating vanilla boys in my 20s. And, but it was always sort of in the background there percolating. And then I started going into acting. And acting was a big part of my life. And it was only until my, my 30s. I call them my dirty 30s. And that's when I really started to get back into the idea of, of kink and, and role play and stuff like that. So, and then pretty much after my last chemo treatment and oh uh, yeah, around my, cause I had my chemo last chemo treatment. And then a week later I turned 50. Mm -hmm. So that's when I said, this is going to be the time that I make the leap. And I, I step into the ring um, with both feet and uh, I became a professional dominatrix. So, and I, I still do the acting. Uh, and that's a very much a part of who I am. I'm kind of a shapeshifter. But uh, that's why I really, really enjoy um, doing scenes. Because it's very much the theater of pain and pleasure. And um, I just love to improvise. I'm also an improviser too. So that sort of feeds into my, my acting bug because now all the theaters have shut down and uh, all the comedy gigs, you know, places have shut down. So I get to sort of slip into my, you know, theater acting role <laughs> when, when, I, when, I, when I do scenes, you know, like either virtually or, or in person, so. When you first got back into kink, what kind of role did you have? I was actually a switch. Um, I always, I've always known that I've been a switch. Um, and I, I, I didn't think I had the, the self-confidence to pull off being, uh, uh, you know, a, a real dom dominant. Mm -hmm. I was more of a top than a complete dom at the time and I just started to do more digging more reading and I just you know something about turning I turned 40 and then it was really I was really interested in in exploring that side of myself um, and then as I you know got older and I had been thinking about becoming a dom 
I would say in my, about my forties, but I was too chicken shit to do it. Mm. So then I, you know, had the cancer and that sort of shakes up your world and, and makes you question things. And it makes you realize that we don't have an infinite time on this earth. So I just said, you know what, I'm just diving headfirst into this. And, and it was probably the best decision I've ever made. Um, so I would say I'm more of a, of a dom than a, than a submissive but then again even when I was you know in the peak of my sexuality it took it it would take a super strong alpha 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 male to to really dominate me because I'm an alpha female so a lot of the men that I would hope that would sort of take me you know kind of in a Tarzan Jane kind of way (laughs) I would end up flipping it around and be like okay well (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know who's, 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 you know, who's the, the one that's uh, the ringmaster in this, uh, in this relationship. So, but yeah, uh, yeah, it was a switch. So, but now it's, it's, I think as I've matured into my, uh, in, in, um, in the Wiccan tradition, we call it the crone years, uh, <laughs> the crone and people think it's like old and ugly old lady, but she's more of the, the wise spiritual woman. And I think that once I passed into that kind of threshold in my mid forties, I'm like, yeah, you know what? There is wisdom that comes with age and there's, you know, a, a graceful beauty that comes with aging and um, a firmness and an authority that I didn't have before. So I think it's really settled in well with me now. You talk about being 40 and turning 50 but there was so much life before that. Mm-hmm. And it almost mm-hmm. seems as though there's this not void, but there there's this hole there between when you first snuck into a leather club <laughs> and you turning into a dom and then a pro dom. What were those years like in between for you? <sighs> It was stifling to say the least. Um, I was very vanilla because it was kind of expected that you got married and you had kids and you had a family and and I kind of let that be my my mission and raison d'être. And as much as I wanted to allow myself to explore my sexuality, I constantly felt held back by the partners I had at that time. I dated, I dated two men quite seriously. I mean, for a good four or five years. And we were both, you know, we were supposed to get engaged with, you know, at different times with these men. And, and, you know, sex was just kind of a, a thing to do. So there wasn't very much room for kink and they weren't really open to kink. So, um, but at that time also, uh, in my twenties, I had a nervous breakdown and that took a big chunk out of my life because, um, I had to take time off from university and then I had to go back and finish my degree. But, um, yeah, I would have to say it was in my in my 30s. That's when things really started to turn around. That's why I call them like my dirty 30s, mm-hmm. because uh, that's that's when the the old diamond blue came back to resurface. And, and I spent a lot of time 
nurturing myself and my desires and my kink. And I just sort of threw caution to the wind. I didn't have any children at that point and I wasn't married. And I said, well, you know what? Now's the time. So you might as well enjoy yourself. (laughs) You mentioned rather casually a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. I have not shared with my audience on this show the fact that it was actually, as we taped this, um, four years ago today. And I find it interesting that we're taping it on today. Hmm. Four years ago today where I was headed towards one. Oh my God, wow. I was in a at a house party with a dungeon. I walked in there expecting to have a scene with somebody I was meeting there. Mm-hmm. They weren't able to make it, but I was just in a really bad place. I had had a rough time at work. Things weren't going well with anything in my life. And I just needed to get away for a while. Mm-hmm. At that time, I broke down in tears And when I found out that the person wasn't going to be able to make it, I had one uh, dom there who thought I was trying to guilt her into playing with me by my crying. I had another person who was my friend who said, put on your big boy pants and just feel better. Oh, geez. And it led me to go home from the play party that night and look over at a large bottle of pills that I had. And I stared at them and I stared at them. And then I got text messages from the same friend who had told me to put on my big boy pants and said, you have to make a decision whether you're going to be better or not. And until you do, we don't want anything to do with you. (sighs) Eventually, they banned me from that play space because they accused me of guilting people into playing with me. Oh, my God. A couple of weeks later, I, um, I went into an outpatient uh, psychiatric program and actually reinvented myself. And I was lucky enough that I didn't decide to take any pills. I did decide to move forward and I did decide that I mattered. And after that program, I came out of it. And the irony is shortly after I came out of it, I got laid off and then I got a job in a different city. I moved away from my spouse at the time. My kids had both graduated from high school. So I felt like I could do that. And I went and found myself. And the whole reason I'm sharing this particular story is because you and I have been talking for a while, mm-hmm. uh, mostly in, in text to each other or in messages, but we haven't had much of a chance to visit with each other, but there was always this kindred spirit between us. <laughs> and then I hear you talk about your 20s where you're in vanilla relationships where there wasn't any room for kink. Mm-hmm. And there was that time that was wasted there. My time that was wasted was during the kink shaming uh, of my former spouse. So we're these kindred spirits. And I have Mm. 
been waiting to get you on this show to talk about so many things. How has your ability to have come through that and continue to have to deal with the mental health issues? How has kink played a role in helping you get through that? First, I want to just say thank you so much for sharing. That's that's such a beautiful, poignant story. And it speaks to your character of, of vitality and courage. So thank you. Um, well, for me, it's... I think I think I was I think I was lucky because after I had my nerves breakdown which was which had it led up to that point because for about between the ages of 13 and 19 I didn't know it at the time but I was bipolar mm. and it was hell it was hell. Nobody knew what to do with me. I went to see every psychiatrist in the city and, and nobody knew how to diagnose me. And so it was just bouncing off the walls between being, you know, completely strung out high and then, you know, crippling, numbing lows. And I felt like I hadn't found my tribe. I didn't even know what a tribe was at mm. that point, but I felt like I was very much alone not only in my suffering but just alone being kind of the oddball kid and having um just a very vivid imagination and, a, and an interesting way of looking at life and like you I had many close calls with uh suicide attempts and the long story short is that after I had the breakdown much like yourself, I said to myself, okay, I'm going to take this into my own hands and I'm going to move forward and, and start doing things for myself and have a, a new kind of a reinvention. And I went with my gut and I went with my heart. And that's when I started to move into the theater and film circles and finding those people and knowing that we were all kind of bit off and and a lot of them were pretty kinky too so <laughs> I was really thrilled by by the fact that I was starting to find my tribe and um I you know I, I left it for a while and had you know the vanilla life and then sort of moved back because I had that that desperate yearning to to be connected on many different levels and not feel shamed about it and when I met the King community, we met them again. It was just nice to be able to be who I was and, and not have to, you know, tone it down, uh, not have to, uh, you know, hide my, my enjoyment of, of things that, you know, vanilla people would call weird. And the more I, I leaned into that uh, and I just felt so embraced and, and so supported and, everybody just seemed to support each other. It was, it was all like we were in the same boat type of thing. Mm -hmm. And, and it was a weird looking boat <laughs> with some holes in it, but, but that was okay. And I made so many wonderful uh, friends and had 
so many unique, special, fulfilling relationships that I had never even dreamed about having in my vanilla life. And um, I just, I, I don't feel discriminated. I don't feel like I stand out like a sore thumb. Um, I just think inherently we are who we are because we, I think maybe just we like to live life on the edge. We like to live life outside the box. And a lot of people that live in a vanilla world are afraid to go down that, you know, quote unquote rabbit hole and sort of stay on the periphery and look down and say, you know, everybody down there is weird. But you know, when it comes down to it, I think there's, there's a, there's a connection between, you know, like losing your mind and expanding your mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, you know, quote unquote, went down the psychiatric rabbit hole, but at the same time, I, I came out uh, a person who was very true to herself and, and honored my, my quirks and my kinks. And I think that a lot of people who are into the scene um, are in the same boat as well. We, we all, we do what we do because we enjoy it. And when we find our tribe, we thrive. And the tribe can also be your other tribe of actors and comedians Absolutely. and improvisers. Because Absolutely. that's the first tribe that I found because I was able to do that without having to be dealing with any kink shaming or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I was able to do comedy and not have any problems at, at all mm -hmm. until one day, which sounds like part of a seven sentence story structure. But until <laughs> one day when I went on stage in a musical improv showcase. Oh, those are tough. <laughs> and my spouse was in the audience and I was so proud of my performance. I was out there. I was just killing. <laughs> and I came off the stage and instead of, oh my gosh, honey, you, you were pretty amazing there. Or, oh my gosh, honey, you were really funny. The following words came to my ears. I'm glad I'm not married to the guy that's on the stage. <sighs> Oh my God. And my response was, that's funny. The guy who's on the stage is the real me. The actor is the one that has to come home. Wow. And it was at that exact moment that I knew that my marriage was probably never going to work out. Wow. And when you feel like that, when you are at the top of your world, when you feel the exhilaration and the person that you care about the most says something like that about you, mm -hmm. you can't help but have instant drop, just like you might after a wonderful scene and somebody goes, well, you weren't very safe in that and I don't appreciate you and I never want to talk to you again, which... <laughs> has happened before because I went to a socially distanced play party and they thought I was at a place with like 70 people and there were 10 there in a huge room mm. and I wasn't being safe. And I wow. was going, 
I'm going, that's my risk profile. So the comedian side of things can also help us find our tribe. And many times people will mm -hmm. say, have you ever met a comedian who is absolutely sure of themselves? <laughs> and I Look think the answer to that is no, because that's how we become the way we are. Absolutely. They're, that's the, the, they're unicorns and they don't exist. <laughs> So did finding that tribe help you as well? Oh my God. Absolutely. Uh, more so in the improv world than the comedy world. Mm -hmm. um, I got introduced. It was first the acting and then the improv and then the stand-up comedy. And in the improv community, as, as you know, it was just so, you know, the first thing that you're taught is, you know, embrace failure and, and fail gracefully. And for me, that was such a foreign concept because I grew up in a strict household and, you know, you had to be perfect. And if you even were perfect, that it wasn't perfect enough. So I carried with me this chip on my shoulder about failure and failing in public my mother was always like you know what are where are, where are what are other people going to think about when they see you doing this or wearing that so for me about you know the public opinion was was very much uh high on my priority list so when i had this option to go on stage and fail miserably and enjoy it i couldn't believe it and it took me a good few months just to be comfortable with that idea and I would try so hard to to be funny and then the teacher would be like no 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 say something stupid go ahead fail I'm like, but I can't I can't <laughs> and then it, it just over time you know you develop uh, a kinship with your your fellow improvisers you know we we did like we went through six levels together you know and, and it's those are, you know, half of your courses. So you stick with these people for a few years and you really get comfortable and you really feel safe. And then it came to the point that I felt safe with my, with my improv group. And then I said, okay, let's take this to the stage. And being on stage and having a room full of people who know that you're going to fuck up at some point and enjoy it with you is mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's when I decided that I was going to go into stand-up because I had developed a character and it was very flamboyant, freaky character. And I went on stage at improv and everybody loved it. And I was just rambling off the top of my head and, you know, stupidities that came to my mind. But I was aware that nobody knew who this character was so I get anything can come out of my mouth and it was funny and then I realized well that's the key that's the key to being a really great comedian is that if you take these improv tools and you take them to the stage because I've seen so many comedians you know I mean I was I was at Dangerfields in New York City like about four years ago and and I was doing like a Friday night and and the comedians that I'm with were some of them were really terrified. I mean, granted, I was terrified as well, but I was in my character. And, and to see them go on stage and then forget a line and then stumble and then 
get even more stressed out. And then, you know, the, the male comedy thing is to fall back to being aggressive or being racist. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, mm. I, I, they would come off the stage and be, oh, fuck, I bombed. And I said, you know, have you ever done improv work? And they kind of look at me like I'm from outer space. And they're like, ah, improv is for sissies. I'm like, no, <laughs> improv is for, for, it's not for the faint of heart. It's, it's for, you know, the people who are really willing to get their hands dirty and, and, you know, get in there and and fail and go on stage and and be okay with that i said i can't tell you how many times i've fucked up on stage i said but even if and i i have done you know the the odd night where you know there's crickets in the audience and the jokes just don't land but being an improviser going into it i know that it's like okay well i'm just gonna let it roll off my back and if i hear crickets in the audience i'll start doing another animal sound to mimic the crickets and that's one of my jokes you know but but to uh to be able to fall back onto the fact that you can get through any situation if you just believe in yourself and trust in yourself was the huge takeaway lesson for me and you get through all of these things you uh persevere through Mm -hmm. all of these things and suddenly somebody mentions the word cancer to you Mm -hmm. yeah how did you take it oh god well I wasn't new to cancer because my mom had my, I, you know, almost everybody in my family had cancer. Uh, my dad had it first and then my aunt and then uh, my grandparents and then my mom had it and she, they found it late in the game. She had melanoma and it was a stage four at the time. Mm-hmm. And they basically found it by accident. She had a, a, a mole removed on her back and she, they, they went for a biopsy and they said nothing was happening. And then she went back because the, the wound wasn't healing. And the, the doctors going through the port, he's like, oh my God, had I known this was cancer, I never would have operated. Somebody made a mistake on the first biopsy report. No and unlike in, the America, unlike in America, we can't sue for malpractice, right? So that was the first shock. And then we went to see a doctor who basically told her, you know, if I give you chemo, you're, you're old and you're not going to be able to get out of bed and it's probably going to kill you. So she was, she was ruthless and relentless. She's like, I am not going to let this kill me. I want to live. And I want to beat this thing because I still, I'm not going to be a victim to this. And I'm not, this is not the way I want to go. So despite all the odds, she, the cancer came back three different times. She had two or three different kinds of rounds of chemotherapy. The last one was called interleukin-2, which was at that time very experimental. And the chances of it working were like 5%. So, you know, knock on wood, uh, she's 10 years cancer-free. And uh, so that was, you know, it was a good six years of my life, uh, you know, being her primary caregiver and seeing her go through all the chemo and all the treatments and the hair loss and the sickness and the fatigue and the, the waiting for the scan in between, you know, you live in your six month bubble between the scans where you're like, okay, I have six months now where I don't think I have cancer because cancer is not here now. And then you get close to your scan time. You're like, oh fuck, it mm-hmm. may have come back. So we did that for a while. So I think maybe that that kind of prepared me for when I received the phone call. And um, 
it's it's one of the funniest moments that that I can remember because I was out in New Hampshire and there's no taxes on on clothing there <laughs> unlike here in Quebec uh, and I was at um, one of those big box malls and I had just ran into Old Navy and I jeans were cheap so I bought like five pairs and then I had rented an SUV to you know drive around and I felt like a total soccer mom and I'm sitting with my stuff. I'm like, yes, I got all the stuff tax-free and jeans were only $10. Yay. And my <laughs> phone rings and it's an unknown number. And it was my doctor. And, and I had just had a colonoscopy like three weeks before that. And it was completely a random colonoscopy because I have reflux disease. Mm-hmm. He says, you know what? It's like, you're in your forties. Maybe you could have an idea to, you know, might be a good thing to have a colonoscopy. He says, well, you know, we'll knock two birds out with one stone. We'll give you a colonoscopy and uh, uh, a gastroscopy. So I, you know, I had been relatively healthy and um, I, I couldn't believe it. I picked up the phone. He says, I've been trying to call you for the last two days. I'm like, well, I've been on vacation and the number that comes up is private caller. So he says, yeah, well, I just want to tell you that I've been, you know, asking four different pathologists to check the results of your colonoscopy. There was a polyp in there and we had just confirmed now that it's, it's uh, not Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, a a very rare form Mm -hmm. and it's cancerous and everything just sort of went silent. And I said, does that mean I have cancer? And he says, yes. And everything just sort of froze. Time just sort of stood still for that moment. I was just holding my phone and I felt like I dropped into this weird black hole. And I said, what's next? And he says, how soon can you come home? And I'm like, I'm still on vacation. And it's like Thursday. He says, well, come back. You got to come back. I got to see you on Monday. And then I, you know, booked you with the oncologist on Tuesday, blah, blah, blah. We got to get this done fast. So he says, you know, we're, we're going to get through this. He says, I, we don't have a scan. We don't know if it's spread, but I think that we've caught it earlier. We hope that we've caught it early. And, and I just said, how, I mean, what is this? And he I said, I don't smoke. I don't drink. And he says, well, let's just say that you had bad DNA. It was the, the luck mm-hmm. of the draw that you happened to have this. And I said, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Like nobody in my family had this. It's not a hereditary thing. And, and so he just said, okay, well, you know, take care of yourself. And then I hung up the phone (laughs) and the first thought that went through my mind is like, shit, should I go back and get more jeans? They're only $10 (laughs) (laughs) and I'm here now, damn it. And, and, and it was just so, it was so weird how my mind just like flipped. I don't know if, I guess I was in denial or shock or whatever, Mm -hmm. or I was just really, really close to that outlet. So (laughs) (laughs) convenience wise. So I just, I sat there and I didn't get more jeans. (laughs) I drove back to the hotel and then I, the whole time it was like a good, good two hour drive on the highway. And I just put my tunes on and, and I just tried to sit there and I'm like, I have cancer. I have cancer. I have cancer. And it was so weird because I just kept on saying these words to try to make it fit in a way that I could actually own it. And, and another funny thing is that when I was a kid in high school, I had a friend of mine and she was very square, but she always had like, always had a pack of cigarettes. She was 14, but she always had a pack of cigarettes in her purse along with her brush to brush her hair. 
And we used to smoke outside. I mean, I wasn't a heavy smoker. It was just smoking because it was cool. And, and we, you know, like back at the school at lunchtime and there was a, a brother that was a teacher in the school and he'd come by and he'd look at us and he'd say, cancer, cancer is a cancer. And he'd shake his head and he'd walk away. Mm. And, and so we thought, well, that was the funniest thing. It's like we, we would imitate him and, and she would imitate him. She'd slouch over and she'd be like, cancer, cancer is a cancer, cancer is a cancer. And then we, we thought it was the funniest thing in the world, right? I mean, we we're 13. What do we know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm driving and then I have a flash of her saying that. And, and it's the voice in my head. And as I'm driving, I simultaneously burst out into tears and laughter because I'm like, this is really funny, but this is really scary. But mm -hmm. this is funny. This is scary. And then I got back to the hotel and I called my mom. And my first thing, she says, we're going to get through this. I got through it. I had cancer came back three fucking times and I would not let it kill me. So God damn it. If it, I'm not going to let it kill you. So she says, we're good. We have a game plan. I know what we need to do. And then, you know, got back home and saw my doctor on the Monday, had my PET scan on the Tuesday, saw my oncologist on the Wednesday. And she said, you know, I'm really happy to say that it hasn't spread you are so lucky. It was caught unbelievably early that the, the polyp didn't even have, like it must've just formed just mm -hmm. when you had that biopsy. She says, because had it spread, it would have spread to your, your colon, your bladder, your, your lower intestines, your kidneys. It would have spread everywhere quickly. So I was, yeah, I was, I was shaken. And, and, and then I had to realize it's like, okay, I, I have cancer. That's a big word. And it's a big term to sort of cart around with you. And, you know, I had my full day of crying. And then after that, I just said to myself, you know what, I still have a lot to do in my life. There's a shitload of things that, that I, I want to do. And I feel like I'm on a mission. And I am not going to let this kill me. I am not going to let it be the boss of me. I'm going to make cancer my bitch. And the, to my surprise of the, of the doctor, uh, she said, so this was on a Wednesday. And she said, you know, we want to start chemotherapy like next Monday. I said, if you're not giving me enough time to even think about this, said, we have to, we have to do it soon. And I said, listen, I know that if I don't go into this with a, a, a right state of mind and a physical um, a strength and a mental strength, I'm not going to survive the chemo. And I, cause it was also um, immunotherapy, which is, which is rough. It's really rough, rough going treatment. And, and so we kind of argued, <laughs> she, she's like, she makes me think of like, you know, uh, this really very beautiful, but yet very stern dom. And she actually reminded me of Simone Justice. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, no, I am not. I'm going to go away to Cuba for a week. And she's like, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. <laughs> so it was this kind of battle of wits. And then I just said to her, listen, I know my body. I know myself. I know what it did to my mom and I know what it's going to do to me. I know, I hate to say it, I know better than you. And she just looked at me and she's like, if this is what you want to do, then I can't stop you.
Mm-hmm. And I went and I swam in the ocean by myself and I did snorkeling and scuba diving and I had my pina coladas on the beach and I just said to myself, this is going to be the most horrible part, full-time job that I'm going to have for the next six to eight months, but it's a contract and it's going to come to an end and I will be cancer-free after that. So I came back and uh, she was so surprised. She says, you look great. I'm like, I know. <laughs> so then we started the chemo. And I think because I had the time to really sit with it and then sort of say, you know, tease away my identity of who I was and who I was probably going to become because I was going to be sick with chemo. And I sort of separated that. And I said, no, I'm going to be this person with chemo. I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to be healthier and I'm going to, you know, get rid of the cancer. And I was able to sort of step into this other identity and, and it, it stuck, it gelled. So I went through the chemo pretty much without really devastating side effects. I mean, there were times when my, you know, white blood cell count was like zero and I got a cold and I had to stay in isolation in the ER for like four days. But aside from that, you know, it, it wasn't as horrible. And that's the, what I took away from that was that mindset is everything and that you can be your own boss and, and find the confidence and the strength within to overcome any situations. And I think that came also from the fact that, you know, after having my breakdown and after having suffered, you know, uh, manic depression for so many years, just that kind of whole reinventing of yourself, just to know that you've come to hell and back and that, you know, anything else is kind of, you know, it's, uh, it's easy peasy. So, uh, so yeah, so, you know, knock on wood, uh, I actually, you know, it's going to be three years ago next, next, it's on the 27th. So that's three years, uh, since my last chemo and I'm cancer free. <laughs> long answer to a short question <laughs> hello i'm jesse sage from peep show media peep show media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays porn reviews events interviews news stories and more also make sure to listen to our podcast the peep show podcast anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on what women and other wonderful humans want. Hi, my name is Leanne and I am the owner of Polyphilia, where you can get your daily fix of memes dedicated to polyamory, ethical non-monogamy and personal growth in open relationships. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Polyphilia blog, spelt P-O-L-Y P-H-I-L-I-A-B-L-O-G. I hope to see you there, and please also check out my episode on what women and other wonderful humans want. You are listening to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Here again, we say to our host, Hi there, Catsuit. Mistress Diamond Blue? a professional dominatrix, a comedian, and a cancer survivor. We have heard the story of survival and fight. And you mentioned that the day you discovered you had cancer, 
you were at Old Navy and you had bought five pairs of jeans. <laughs> How did you trade five pairs of jeans in for a latex catsuit? <laughs> um, I always had a crazy wardrobe. I mean, I'm an actor, right? So I have like my, was it on Sesame Street that they had somebody with like a tickle trunk or was that like, I think that might've been like a, a Canadian, like, like a Mr. Rogers. Didn't Mr. Rogers have a tickle trunk or something like where they, he would pull out like costumes, right? So mm-hmm. I had one of these, you know, trunk suitcases type of thing and I had I had accumulated so many outfits from you know garage sales vintage shops but I never had anything latex um and uh it was only what is it I think I I think I had my first latex purchase was maybe 20 years ago and I got a a latex like skirt type of thing and of course it looks like you know this it's the size of a sponge right <laughs> you have to like stretch it out stretch it out get into it shimmy into it and I just I fell in love with the fabric I'm like oh this is crazy just the way it smells and it feels and to touch it and just to be inside of it made me feel very you know uh, sensual and I only got my my first cat suit um what else I think about uh, maybe two years ago hmm. so but I've, I mean, I've always had like kind of kinky weird weird clothes like for as long as I can remember I mean I st- <laughs> I bought vintage dresses when I was 19 and I'm going to be 53 so you could calculate that <laughs> so I have all kinds of outfits but yeah the the latex it's an investment you know it's it's a it's it's not for the faint of heart and uh, <laughs> or the wallet <laughs> but um yeah. And, and now I get it. I get them custom, but I have to admit, I kind of cheat. I go on eBay and there's a place called Civet Latex, C-I-V-E-T Latex. And I bought like random like gloves and stuff like that from from some of the Chinese suppliers in in on eBay and horrible stuff. But this this place is is really, you know, not bad quality. So, I mean, I paid like 200 something dollars for it. But uh, I'm waiting for the day that I can afford, you know, um, I forget the name. There's a boutique in New York City that that is. Uh, like, the Baroness. Yes. One day, <laughs> one day I'm going to be able to afford something that's like a la Barbarella, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Barbarella meets Catwoman, you know. So then that will be the real cat suit. <laughs> Interestingly enough, coming up on April the 20. April the 20th, the Baroness will be on this very show. Tell her I say hello. (laughs) (laughs) Tell her I'm coming down to New York City to meet her (laughs) once the (laughs) pandemic is over. (laughs) I'll send you my measurements. You can pass them along to her. (laughs) It is the first time I've ever been intimidated by someone interviewing them. (laughs) I can imagine. I felt like I needed to crawl under the table. (laughs) (laughs) Did you? Will yes, you when I you may do have. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God it's all audio. It's a podcast, so she can't see you. Unless she heard the thuds. <laughs> well, I think she could see me, and she saw the blushing going on. <laughs> <laughs> so you enter this professional dominatrix world. 
how did you start that? What led you to say, I'm going to do this professionally? Um, like I said, you know, I had been going to clubs, you know, as a, as a top uh, and I would meet friends there. And I just became enamored with, with, you know, how these doms carry themselves and, and it was just something so, so magical about it. And then I just said, well, you know what? It's, it's fun to do it as playtime, but mm -hmm. I think that I want to take it to the next level. And I want to be able to, you know, have my own dungeon one day and, and have my own client base and really explore um what kink is like for other people you know because when you play sometimes you play in a small circle of friends right and and you don't kind of go beyond that and i just said you know what um uh i'm 50. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if you've seen sally o'malley on uh on saturday like, I'm, I'm 50 50, 50, 50 years, years old, old. <laughs> and i'm a dominatrix <laughs> And I can kick, whip, and kick. <laughs> I'll never look at Molly Shannon the same way again. <laughs> so I just, I found myself a mentor. I was on, I had been on FetLife for a good, like, 10 years before that in my Switch profile. And then I became, like, I went, I did Mistress. And I was looking and I, I reached out to a bunch of people in the city and a one dom in particular said, oh, well, you know, if you're interested, let's meet. So we met and we had a long, like two hour conversation about basically what you and I have been talking about. And also the, the idea of holding, you know, what I feel is a sacred space for, for somebody to come in to explore their kink and have them walk away being a changed person and that there's a lot of power and responsibility that goes with being a pro-dom and but at the same time it was also something magical about it and I I mentored with her for almost a year and she would have her parties and she'd bring her slaves in and uh you know we'd we'd kind of she she would supervise and we would play with them and I just I became addicted I'm like this is just like an adult playground this is a lot of fun and I just was fascinated by oh you know, she had so many toys and and like props and this kind of cross and that kind of cage and and I just said I feel like I'm a, I'm a kid in a candy store I just I just want to do everything and I, I wanted to explore all those different kind of roles. I mean, I had played with partners and it was just kind of, you know, like master servant or, you know, just like, um, you know, role play, you know, naughty, you know, naughty schoolboy and nasty nun type of thing. But I never experienced pet play before or, you know, puppy play. And so we had somebody come in and she's like, he wants to be a puppy. And I said, okay, I'm a cat person. I'm not really a dog person, so I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. She's like, treat him like a puppy. And, and I stepped fully into that. And it was really fascinating, not only for me to be, you know, on the end of seeing this grown man, like roll around and, and, you know, fetch a ball, but, but to, to 
just the, the whole the whole connection that we had you know it was like human to human but it was also like master to pet mm-hmm. and and I was just at that point you know my brain just sort of connected back to you know improv you know be a rock be 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 you know like be a bookcase be be a dinosaur you know and, and it, I just said wow you know like with my experience in improv and acting I can allow and with the tools that I have you know give my um I don't now I'm thinking in French like I'm giving my advice to them how to how to reach the peak experience of what it's like to 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 transform into a quote-unquote animal through my improv experience so I I realized that that sort of set me apart from from some of the other doms that she was training because I had this this background this experience so she was really impressed by that she's like you know you're taking you're taking it in a whole different direction and that's very unique of you and also I am a a Reiki master Reiki is um it was uh, founded in the 1900s by a Japanese monk and it's basically it's energy work. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I also bring this energy work into um, my doming as well. And she, the, my mentor was very impressed with that too, because she understood, you know, tantric energy and an exchange of energies in that kind of a dynamic. So having the space to explore that, in a safe space with her was was really wonderful and things just grew from there i i really put out the feelers i you know hopped on twitter uh on instagram and i just connected with different people and different doms and then fetish weekend came along into montreal which is famous for being you know the kinky labor day weekend <clears throat> and then from there uh you know before fetish weekend i put feelers out to just everybody that I saw that was going, you know, from the States and they'd say, Hey, you want to, you know, you want somebody to hang out with and show you Montreal, hit me up. And, you know, we, I, since we're all going to fetish weekend and that's how my network just exploded. And I started to meet people from all different countries and all walks of life and doms and subs and pups and, you know, just, you name it. And, and then that really opened up my world. And, and then I said to myself, I think I'm, I think I'm ready to, to, to go on my own. And, and I did, and it was hard for a while because I felt that I was sort of in my own little bubble type of thing. And then just gradually over time, um, I started to find my, you know, my mojo, but I have to admit, I had like uh, quite a few health problems just before the pandemic started. I actually had a, a serious car accident. Mm. So that that shelved my, you know, my dom, my breaking into the dom life by a good seven months. And then the next thing, you know, the pandemic happens. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, even though the, the universe is cock blocking me, I don't care. <laughs> I'm still going <laughs> to move forward with this, me with my neck brace on, right? And the concussion, I'm just like, in the pandemic, I'm like, I don't care fuck you, I'm going to do this anyway. So then I, you know, started to build a virtual presence. And, you know, I have clients who I do virtual sessions with. And, you know, there's, I have a few clients that I see in person, but they're very select few. And we go through, you know, the full COVID protocols, you know, it's the mask and the visor and the whole kit and caboodle, which becomes a fetish in itself. (laughs) And uh, so, so, so yeah, so that's where I'm at now. I read your biography on your very beautiful new website. <laughs> and it is very, very intense. It is very, very 
dominating. <laughs> but I know you as the person that laughs all the time, and it's hard for me to put the two together. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get yourself? And I know it's a lot of it has to do with acting. Mm -hmm. But how do you present as this serious badass when your inside is so full of joy? Um, when I go into a session, I bring that joy with me. Mm -hmm. um, I can be, I could be the real nasty, kick-ass, merciless bitch. I can, you know, if I really get into it, I can, I can, I can be utterly ruthless and, and, you know, carve open somebody's heart and eat it right there. Um, metaphorically speaking, um, I'm very method acting, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, for me, I, yeah, it's, it's all about, it's all about getting into the, the headspace of, of, the particular character that I want to embody, if it's the, you know, sadistic nurse, or if it's, you know, the, the, the headmistress of a, of a private school, or even if it's, you know, some sort of futuristic, you know, alien woman, uh, I can, I just dive deep in there and I sort of flesh out the sadistic parts of what I imagine that character would be. And I put on my acting cloak and I dive in head first. And I think, you know, like doing, you know, Stanislavski and, and you know, uh, uh, my God, Meisner, you know, all mm -hmm. those techniques have, have helped me to, to uh, expand my range and my depth when I dive into, you know, my Dom character. But um, I also like to have fun with it as well. Um, I've done some videos with a, with a friend of mine, his name is Gloved Sub, and he, he, he enjoys tickling videos, so I can be cruel and sadistic, but at the same time, I have this maniacal laugh, which, which people actually find quite entertaining, and, um, yeah, so I think, you know, once, once you, you live a life full of, of pain and adversity and, you know, even cancer, you kind of realize that nothing in life is to be taken absolutely seriously 100%. And in a lot of my sessions, you know, they it would be really serious, intense, uh, you know, scenes where, where we're really in character and, and I'm, you know, flogging somebody really, really hard. And then we sort of slip out of it for a second and I crack a joke and then we laugh and then we kind of switch back into what we were doing. So, um, yeah, for me, it's like I said, it's the the theater of of pain and pleasure, and that's that's where I feel most comfortable. I have been told, as far as being realistic, that women of my age, which would be in their fifties, don't wear cat suits and they don't like wearing all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and then I'm like. I know this one person <laughs> who does. And uh, it has been absolutely amazing, not only getting to know you through our text conversations, but through our chats and through this podcast. You're not on the back nine. 
to use the golf analogy, you are coming into your prime at a time where most people might think they're entering their back nine. Mm-hmm. How do you envision your future from here? <laughs> um, if, if Lauren Bacall was a dom, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, but that's maybe to the younger generation that they don't know who she is, but I mean, you know, like imagine Lady Gaga 20 years from now, you know, like I'm sure that she's still going to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, rambunctious and, 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 uh, outrageous and flirtatious and sensual and sexual, that kind of stuff doesn't go away. Madonna. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Madonna. I mean, Jesus Christ, look at her. She's, but she has that, that inner fire, that inner spark. Like I said, that, that never goes away. And, and I've met older doms as well. And there's that, that, that fire that never gets extinguished and that exudes sexuality, power, uh, elegance. And, and I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to being, you know, the, the 60 year old kick-ass, you know, dominatrix. Dumb. <laughs> and I have, you know, my, my dungeon with my minions and my trainees and giving classes and traveling and, and, and just really, really enjoying life. I I'm blessed with good genes. I don't look my age and I know that's not always going to be the case, but I really do feel that if you have the, the inner self-confidence and, and the, the, the ability to carry yourself well, that translates into anything that's above and beyond, you know, a young woman who's just pretty. You know, I actually got a chance to work with Lauren Bacall when I was working on a film shoot many years ago here in the city. And she, at that point, she must have been... 78 79 she was the classiest lady and she was all about power and elegance and class and sass and and I just looked at her I'm like even though you're an older woman you still have you still have that 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 just that oomph of a 20 year old, you know, and, and of, of, a, of a young woman who's absolutely sure of herself, who's a complete man eater. And it just radiated from her. And I said, oh my God, I want to be like her when I get, when I get to her age. Absolutely. And, and I, I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, Hollywood is finally catching up. A lot of older women are finally getting their time in the spotlight. You know, there's a lot of TV shows about older women and older single women, you know, women who are divorced, that kids have left the nest. And, and, and it's nice to see that, that growing old is not stigmatized, but it's embraced. So I think that my coming to this business at this time is, is, it's actually great timing. So I'm feeling confident. And, and if I can, you know, inspire some 30 year old who's saying, Oh my God, I'm so scared of turning 40. I'm like, honey, <laughs> it only gets better. It only gets better. You know, when you pass your thirties, it's you, you, you gain a level of, of, of self-trust and um, a feeling of accomplishment that doesn't come in your thirties. That only comes from time and experience. You and I have discussed the hope that I have that you and I can come together at some mm-hmm. kink conventions or even at fetish weekend 
and introduce the world to improv and kink. <laughs> and I yes. genuinely hope that you and I can teach that class sometime because I think it would be the most incredible class that people would have so much fun that they wouldn't expect. And I'm saying this on the podcast. So if any <laughs> convention organizers happen to be listening, we have we dibs. want to do this. And we have dibs. Diamond <laughs> <laughs> Blue, please share with us all the great ways we can connect with you and how to best reach out to you. So there is my website, mistressdiamondblue.com, one word. Uh, Twitter, it's mdiamondblue. And on Instagram, it's mistressdiamondblue, one word. I believe on OnlyFans, it's diamondblue. And on ABN, it's mistressdiamondblue. But if you pretty much go to my website or on my Twitter, there's uh, all the links there. So. And blue is B-L-U. B-L-U. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted it to, to be as unique as I am. <laughs> I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to know you and to <laughs> have been able to interview you today. I always say it's an honor with my guests, but I honestly feel like I've made a friend and mm. I've been able to um, bring a story that I hope people take to heart knowing that there can be so many different obstacles that are put in your way, but if you keep fighting and you keep getting up, it all turns out beautifully in the end. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you so much <laughs> for being with me today. Thank you, John. <laughs> what an amazing interview with an amazing woman. It has been my honor to get to be her friend over the past few months, and getting to have her on the show has been nothing short of an absolute joy. Next week, a woman who has launched so many of my fantasies as Nylonica from the O-Girl series, she's Kendra James, part superheroine, part fetish model, part dominatrix, and all amazing. Kendra James, next Tuesday on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. And that will do it for this episode of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. I'm John, also known as Hi There, Catsuit, thanking you for being with us and reminding you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky done differently.